Writer Adam Gopnik was living in New York City with his wife and his three-year-old daughter, Olivia, when he realized that his daughter had an imaginary playmate. Olivia's imaginary friend was named Charlie Ravioli. And he had this one peculiar trait. He was always too busy to play with her. I know it's sad. Olivia would hold her toy cell phone up to her ear and say, Wavioli, it's Olivia. It's Olivia, come and play? Okay, call me, bye. And then she would put down the phone and shake her head. I always get his machine, she would say. <laughs> or she would say, I spoke to Wavioli today. Did you have fun? Adam would ask. No, he was busy working. On a good day, Olivia would bump into her invisible friend and they would go to a coffee shop. I bumped into Charlie Wavioli, she might announce at dinner. We had coffee, but then he had to run. Most of the time, Charlie was just too busy. And Adam and his wife might have learned to have lived happily with Charlie Ravioli had it not been for the appearance of Lori. Lori really threw them for a loop. At dinner, Olivia had been mentioning this new personage almost as often as she had mentioned ravioli. She would say, I talked to Lori today. She says ravioli is busy. Maybe this was a nice new friend with more time. Well, not quite. A more ominous side of Lori's role began to appear. Lori, tell ravioli I'm calling. When pressed about who exactly Lori was, Olivia said, well, she works for Wavioli. Things became sickeningly clear. Lori was that perky person who answered Ravioli's phone and told you that unfortunately, Mr. Ravioli is in a meeting. Things seemed to be deteriorating. Now Charlie Ravioli was too busy to even say that he was too busy. When I heard the story, I laughed. I laughed because it was absurd, and I laughed because it was also sadly believable. A child with an imaginary friend in our times who's too busy to play with her. I also laughed because I could relate on some level. I had also found myself surprised and rather unsettled at my own daughter's imaginary play, sometimes involving slinging a purse over her shoulder with great importance and going to work and dropping the child off at school. And I don't know why this surprised me. It's part of our routine, but I guess it was something that I didn't want to have reflected back to me. And if I'm being honest, I also enjoyed this story because it made me feel better about my own parenting. I mean, <laughs> at least my daughter wasn't being ignored by her own imaginary playmates. Our worship theme this month is humility. This word has the same roots as the word human and humus, meaning earth. These words are keys to what humility asks of us, to be honest about our true place in the great order of things, to remember our humanity and that we are of the earth. 
Humility is not about self-hatred or putting ourselves below others or above others for that matter on some kind of scale of human worth. Instead, humility asks us to set aside our ego and set aside our pride and to be honest about our own limitations and the fact that our life is of no greater value than anyone else's and that our living is enormously dependent on forces and circumstances that we did not create and that we do not control. And these humble notions run in marked contrast to the marketplace, to the rat race, and to the world of Charlie Ravioli. Our dominant culture tells us that in order to get ahead, we need to promote ourselves, showcase our successes, even if it means getting there by climbing on our coworkers' backs. Life is conceived as a set of battles that we either win or lose. Conquering ideas and knowledge, winning the affections of others, exerting influence, and taking home the spoils of success. And even our exhaustion could be a trophy. In this paradigm, our worth grows out of our doing. It's not something that is ours by the simple virtue of being. And if we believe that we deserve whatever we have won because we have earned it, then it only follows that when we fall short, we have only ourselves to blame. If we are poor, unemployed, suffering in mind, body, or spirit, then we simply haven't tried hard enough. This leaves us not only experiencing our very real hardship, but it leaves us feeling guilt and shame as well. And there are so many ways that this lie shows up in the workplace, in our criminal justice system, in the stories that we tell about race, about aging, about disability, about anyone who can be framed as the other. I can't help but to think of a former employer of a family member who really resented providing insurance coverage to employees because if they would simply eat right and exercise regularly, they really shouldn't need it. I mean, he ran marathons and ate the healthy meals that his wife cooked for him, and he was doing great. My point is not that there is something wrong with ambition and hard work. The necessity of hard work, the necessity of self-promotion is real, and we need to provide for ourselves and our families. We need to talk about our accomplishments in job interviews. We need vision and enormous effort to bring about that world of greater justice and love and mutual respect that we dream about. The problem is not ambition and hard work. The problem comes when achievement for its own sake becomes our religion. When the striving for success Striving for that sense of enoughness through busyness gets intermingled with our natural religious impulse and it becomes a kind of idolatry. This from our reading this morning. What makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed in too tight, can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water would.
What might find us if we slowed down? What might we discover if we stopped piling on the logs that are filling our calendars, gluing us to our devices, raising our blood pressure and straining our relationships? We can only find out if we slow down. And for someone moving quickly, that is going to involve surrender and faith and a willingness to step into the waters of humility. Our religious forebears, the Universalists, knew a great deal about humility. The early Universalists were radically egalitarian. They were people who believed who, that everyone was saved, no matter what, and thus the name Universalists came from this idea of universal salvation. And in this theology, the individual was removed from the equation. Our individual salvation was no more important to the God of their understanding than anyone else's. Back in the 18th and early 19th centuries, the Universalists really had to be bold to maintain this theological position in a religious culture that was extremely focused on moralism and sin. But also, people were hungry for this message that all souls were worthy regardless of what you've earned or accomplished, and also regardless of how badly you've fallen short. And this gave the Universalists their unique identity, and it also gave them remarkable growth in the decades before the Civil War, when amazingly, the Universalists were the fifth or sixth largest denomination in the United States. But then, their theology started to change over the course of the 19th century, and the Universalists started modifying their radically egalitarian notions. They got uncomfortable with the idea that wrongdoers could go unpunished, and they started saying, well, maybe some people have to be cosmically punished for a little while, but then we can all ultimately go to heaven. And this became known as the Restorationist position. And it might seem like a minor detail, especially in today's world when many of us don't find the notions of hell or otherworldly salvation to be particularly relevant to our spiritual lives. However, in the opinion of theologian Paul Razor, this move from asserting that absolutely all souls were worthy and loved to deciding that some souls were less worthy than others this undermined the radical edge of universalist theology and contributed to the weakening of the universalist movement. When our forebears were tempted to focus on who would need to be punished, even if it wasn't forever, it took away from the deep focus on brotherhood and sisterhood and brought greater focus on the moralistic stuff of sin and virtue and this idea that spiritual development is a kind of project of human perfection. And as the Universalists became less egalitarian, uh, they were still Universalists, and more aligned with the convention of the time, the movement also began to shrink. And there were lots of complex factors that contributed to this. I don't mean to draw uh, a clear line when one isn't there. But the truth is that by the end of the 19th century, the Universalists went from 
having several hundred thousand members to being a very small denomination of less than 50,000 people. So this morning, I want to bring us back to this essence of universalism, this concept that made us strong, this radically egalitarian idea grounded in deep humility that all people are worthy no matter what, that life is not a contest that we must win. We are already worthy and absolutely everybody is. Indeed, part of our value comes from the fact that we are part of something larger than ourselves. And it's good to think about this together this morning, but I also wonder if there might be some kind of practice that could help us have an experience that would ground us in humility, that would ground us in our deepest connecting truths. If we continue to look at our roots and we move down even deeper, we encounter the ancient spiritual practice of keeping the Sabbath. This wasn't just a helpful suggestion. This was the fourth of the commandments handed down to Moses. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And Sabbath is about more than taking a day off. It's a time of sacred rest that asks us to set down our work and to remember. To remember to delight in the fruits of our labor, to remember who we truly are and what we hold most dear and how we're called to serve. To remember with wonder that we are a part of the big everything and we are certainly not the masters of it. We cannot keep a fire going simply by piling on the logs. It's only when the wood has some space around it when it comes into contact with oxygen and can breathe, that a fire can burn. And our task is to learn to create those breathing spaces just as skillfully as we've learned to pile on the logs. This is the practice of taking Sabbath. A weekend, a day, an afternoon, sacred rest, walking, coloring with the kids, listening to music or making music, digging in the dirt and going slowly. This practice, this movement from activity to receptivity requires humility and faith. Taking Sabbath asks us to have the humility to recognize the illusion of our own indispensability in the words of Wayne Muller, to see the illusion of our own indispensability. We take time, we let things unfold without our influence. We see how the earth feeds us, how people greet us, and we remember that we are both creator and recipient of creation. Taking Sabbath also asks us to have faith that when we let go and we slow down and make space, that our world will not come crashing in, that we very well might receive a blessing that we could never have manifested through our sheer will. 
We'll be engaging in this practice together as a church community next Sunday, which we're calling Sabbath Sunday, and I hope that you'll come. It's going to be a multi-generational day of rest and renewal and remembering. As a community, we'll share a potluck lunch, we'll sing, we'll engage in spiritual practice and creative expression, we'll enjoy a concert, we'll rededicate our beautiful labyrinth on its 10th birthday. And there will also be rooms open all day for quiet reflection, for open play with kids, hangout rooms for middle schoolers and high schoolers. I hope you'll bring a dish to share and power down your devices and come spend the day nurturing your spirit in community. Who knows what you might discover. And what about Charlie Ravioli? What happened to him? Well, soon after the appearance of Lori, Charlie's receptionist, Olivia's stories of frustration with Charlie Ravioli started ending in a new way. When Charlie was too busy to play, Olivia would tell her parents about what she chose to do instead. One day, she reported that she went to the circus and told jokes. Another day, she saved all the animals in the zoo. Good for her, moving on with her imaginary life instead of doggedly pursuing the unattainable Charlie Ravioli. But wouldn't it also be sweet if Olivia somehow reconnected with Charlie, connected to that part of herself that couldn't slow down and just be that was so busy piling on the logs that her relationship to him eventually got snuffed out. I'd like to imagine that maybe after they grabbed lunch one day, Olivia could pull Charlie Ravioli into a pile of leaves or into a huge sandbox or run down to the lake, wherever children find their sacred time. And they might rejoice in life's wonder and create a space where the flame of the divine that resides in each human heart that knows just how it wants to burn can find its way. May it be so, and amen.